Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming. My name is Peter Florence, and this is Beryl Bainbridge. (laughs) We're here to talk about this book, Every Man for Himself. Beryl is well-known as one of the greatest living English novelists. She's written a lot about Liverpool, quite a lot about the south of England, and most recently an awful lot about 1912. It was a very big year for you, Beryl. Yes, it was. Yeah. Do you want to know Yes, I'd like why? to know why. Yeah. Well, um, I'd written a book quite some time ago, about five or six years ago. Can you hear me? Is it? about five or six years ago, about um, uh, the play Peter Pan. And um, I realized that uh, James Barry, who wrote Peter Pan, um, he was a great friend of Captain Scott, who went to the South Pole. And um, one of the letters under Scott's arm, when they found him frozen in the tent, was uh, to James Barry, saying, look after my son and my family and tell them uh, we died like gentlemen. And then I suddenly realized, having done research on 1912, uh, that um, they were discovered in 1912 dead, Scott and his, and his men. But of course, um, the month before, no, they were discovered in the March. A month later, on April the 10th, 1912, the Titanic sank. And so as I had researched a lot about that particular year, it seemed logical to go on and do something about the Titanic. It's also on the cusp of modernity, isn't it? Yes, yes. The 20th century is beginning and going horribly wrong. Yes, and and the idea that all those, you know, great hopes about uh, the new inventions and science were going to lead the world to marvelous things, in fact, the natives were revolting. The industrial societies were um, wanting more. There was strikes going on. In fact, there was a coal strike um, in 1912 that stopped all shipping. And the Titanic sailed late, um, which had nothing to do with their sinking. But um, the fact was that the miners went on strike. There was a ship called the Olympic, the sister ship, um, which had also been in an accident. Captain Smith, who commanded the Titanic, who was always known as this great, um, well, I'm sure he was, this great man of the sea, but he had bashed the Olympic into something several months before. So that was in dry dock, (laughs) getting mended. So as soon as, um, so as soon as, uh, uh, you know, the strike was over, they rushed the Titanic out. There's a wonderful um, maxim which your hero, uh, espou- of his, uh, a maxim of his uncle's that your hero espouses, which is that every man, I think this is right, has two reasons for doing whatever he does, a good one and the real one. Yeah. Um, yeah. A good reason for grappling this novel around the Titanic is that you're dealing with one of the great 20th century myths and it is familiar yes. and it gives you huge license to... Yes play with all the lives of the people on board. Is there a, a, is there a real one beyond that? Uh, a real life 
No, a, a real reason for... No, 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 absolutely not. It was just that, um, obviously, it's... Uh, well, don't forget, I've written about, what, 13 or 14 novels, uh, very insular ones, mostly about my background in Liverpool, and uh, apart from the Captain Scott one. And I just suddenly thought, well, you know, there are subjects that actually people might go for. And I thought... Um, I'll try the Titanic. It was it was really that easy. I mean that uh, that that remark uh, about the, there are good reasons that you do things. That's actually um, I got that out of um, the man who owned the White Star Line and who owned the Titanic. I mean I used to think that um, it's only recently that the Americans own half of Britain. But but in 1912, in 1910. Uh, the White Star Line was bought by J. Pierpont Morgan, who owned the Titanic. And um, he was a great Wall Street man, and, and that's, that's what, what he actually said. Why did you choose as your hero, or your central character, this young, very gilded American? Well, he's, he's, um, he's a made-up fictional nephew, half-nephew, sort of not really related by blood, but I, you know, he's been adopted by J. Pierpont Morgan. And the reason for that was um, that I had to have one, I didn't want to, I could have, standing on my head, I could have done some poor chap in the third class coming from Liverpool. I've done that often enough. Um, but then if he was a working man, an emigrant down below, um, of course, he wouldn't have known what was happening on top. Because this, this vessel was enormous. It was um, 800 foot long, and it had how eight much, How much longer is How long is this? I'm not sure. Is, is it three quarters of a mile? Who's got mathematics? Um, it's, a, it's absolutely enormous. Right. So, so, and, and so we're dealing with something twice as big as this tent now. Oh, much bigger than that. Much bigger than that. So it would be, be, be over 800 yards. Oh, well, yes, 800 it's yards, big, yes. Big, it's big very, very big, and it's, it's very, very deep as well. I mean, there's um, illustrations to, to say how big it is, that if you um, turned it upwards like that, it would be higher than the Empire State Building, much higher, the, the, the length of it, upwards, um, and eight decks. So I had to, and I couldn't, I couldn't have a woman telling the story, because presumably, if she was first class, she'd be first in the lifeboats. Uh, so he had to be. And, and I wanted him rich, because, again, unless he was rich and a playboy and slightly pompous, he wouldn't have been in with the, the captain and all the rich crowd on board. So he had to be one of those. But in the end, he's redeemed, I think. It seems to me that you're... The actual journey of the Titanic, as it is, is almost incidental to your fascination with the interplay of the characters. Would that be fair? Yeah, well, yes, because everything you could ever want to know about the Titanic has been written about. I mean, uh, there's document, uh, documentaries. Uh, uh, there's been some, uh, well, two or three films, uh, one rather good one about, about the Titanic. So... There was nothing really one could add unless you actually... All those, those films and the documentaries and the books on the sinking of the Titanic, there's a, perhaps a page or two on them getting on board, and then we cut immediately to um, that last night, this night in the first-class restaurant 
with the chandeliers and the wonderful silver on the tables and the lilies and the orchids. And then they have their meal and they're very happy. They all go to bed quite early. They all go to bed round about, about half past 11, 11 o'clock to half past 11, because it's a Sunday night, uh, except for the young bloods who go into the smoking room. And then, of course, there's a, a shudder, a, a slight shudder. Nobody was really very much aware, except for those actually on duty up on deck, that anything had happened. Uh, and that's what all most books dwell on. They don't ever mention what happened the four days before, because she sailed on the 10th, and she didn't sink until the small hours of the 15th. There's a wonderful freedom you're given for irony in this book, because we all know what's going to happen to the people at the end. There are exquisite moments, like, like the woman who is saved from committing suicide by throwing herself off the Titanic. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, yeah. Yeah. and the beauty of them singing Eternal Father Strong to Save. Yeah. Do you find, or did you carry the, how did you structure the weight of what was going to come when you were actually creating the novel? Well, I suppose for the first time ever, quite honest, I didn't really know what I was doing. Because if you're writing a novel where you know the ending, absolutely. I mean, I believe, well, for in my case, I know, I usually do know where I'm leading to at the very end in a novel. I enjoy endings better than the, the middle and the beginning. But in this case, of course, there was no way I could make my own ending, in a sense. The ship had to hit an iceberg and sink. So um, that, had a, that had a great sort of, um, that troubled me for a long while. So, I, so all, I ha all I could do, but I had in my head the idea that if you're going to have characters, most of whom are going to drown, except the, nar the narrator has to survive because who's telling the story, um, you have to make him in the end that people would quite mind if he drowned. So that was a way of getting, getting through the process of telling the story, I think. Right. And you say that um, there is not a lot of documentation about the four days. No. But how then did you research the stuff that you have in the book, which is meticulously accurate, yeah. I gather, about yes. um, the workings of the coal room and the workings of the engines? Well, just by um, well, reading every single book I could find, factual book, on the Titanic, there's a, uh, I forget, by now I've forgotten all the names and the authors of these people. There's a, a wonderful book, uh, I think it's Michael Davey, who wrote a book in the 80s about um, Harland and Wolf shipyards. And he interviewed um, a man who had actually worked in the shipyards at the time. And, and so there was lots of factual information. And then um, this business of, um, thermodynamics and reciprocating engines. That took me a heck of a long time to understand. But I met a taxi driver who, um, <laughs> whose son was a, a, a marine engineer or something. And he said, uh, he'll write to you. So I got this letter from this man, ex this son, who explained to me that, um, you know, reciprocating engines, again, I've forgotten what they were, so I had to study that. Then I went to the Science Museum in London, in Kensington, and there is, um, there is this reciprocating engine. S 
stuck in the middle. It's huge. Mind you, I think the Titanic had two or three of them. But um, I, could, I could look at that and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, once I got, oh, and then my, my grandson Bertie, who was about 12 at the time, made me a fantastic model of the Titanic, absolutely to scale, and it's a kit. And, and I had to keep, you know, then I took it to see, because I, I, at the beginning I didn't know what a bow, a bow was or what a stern was, so you had to study it. <laughs> Um, but once you sort of got, and you, you look at all the photographs, except there again, most, in fact, apart from about two or three, most of the photographs we see of the interior of the Titanic aren't the Titanic at all. They're the Olympic. Because she was so new, and they rushed her out, so of course they hadn't got time to, to photograph her. Why did they rush her out? Because of this coal strike and everything else, and, and there was this awful thing. Um, which was slightly, just recently, um, the act, a fact, not fiction, fact was that when it left uh, Belfast to come to Southampton uh, before it was about to sail off to New York, there was a fire burning in, I think, number 13 Stokehold, lower down. Now, it, it was burning quite heavily. Now, this is quite normal, apparently, but... Um, particularly if you're in a hurry, if you, if you shove a lot of coal in very quickly, there's ignition and combustion and a fire starts and you put it out with your hose, you know. Um, but this one wouldn't go out and it was burning. It got to Southampton. It, uh, it got a certificate of seaworthiness by the, you know, authorities, which is very peculiar. And it set sail and the fire was only put out 24 hours before the ship hit the iceberg. Now, I always thought that, um, that you know, obviously in those days, when, it, when, when they say the Titanic was made of steel, in actual fact, it's, it's raw iron. And to put the plates of the bow together and the rest of it, you have to um, melt rivets in a, a brazier. You have to melt the, 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 the plates to get the nails in. Um, so obviously, if you've got a fire burning down below for, what, four or five, three or four days, you're going to weaken the whole thing. But apparently, they always said that the iceberg cut it to one side and cut it for 300 feet on this side. Well, there was a new report out only about two months ago in which they said that they've now discovered, those people that go down with those cameras, they've now discovered there was a rip in the front where the fire was burning. And, and uh, presumably, if you've got, um, you know, a, a iron that is melting, and then you suddenly hit very, very cold temperatures, the whole thing becomes brittle. Go, go, go back a minute now, away from the boat, back to yeah. your characters. Yeah. You've chosen young Morgan mm -hmm. and Skurra. Yes. Is that how you pronounce it? Skurra? Skurra, Skurra. yes, Skurra. I think. Where yes. did this ter terribly exotic mysterious man come from? Well, Skura was, uh, there's, a, there's a, mag a magazine, well, it's, it's sort of a free paper that gets sent. Uh, sells second, bi bi bibliograph or something. It's a, a magazine of second-hand books and remaindered books. And in the sort of classical section, this was before I began to write the book, it, it just said the, well, I say Skura, it could be Skura, it's S-C-U-R-R-A. It says the scurra. 
and it said underneath this, a mythical um, clown or malevolent spirit in Roman times, uh, something like that. And I suddenly thought, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to write about a character who's not really there at all, or he's been there, but he's also been, he's been alive for hundreds of years. And I started off with that idea, and in the novel, you never quite know what cabin he's in. He, he knows where everybody else is, and everybody on the ship knows him, but nobody seems to know where he's putting his head down at night. Um, but half, a quarter of the way through the novel, I decided, oh, I can't do that. I'll forget him, that. So I didn't make him immortal. I just um, just left him as this rather, but it w he was useful because he could say all sorts of highly profound remarks, you know, that you couldn't get away with with an ordinary character. He's, he even gets the every man for himself line, which yes, he's got to have that. Yes. Yes. He's, uh, Can you? You've, you've reappropriated this. What the this every man for himself? Yes, this line. Oh, well, no. In my childhood, every man for himself was definitely the thing people said about shipwreck. Now it may have come. It may have actually come from 1912. Oh sure. No, yes, what I meant yes. when I said you reappropriated. Yeah. You, you reappropriated it away from the common conception that it was yes. said by the captain. Yes. And given yes. it to Scorer in a totally different uh, yes, situation. Yes. Because he's carrying on with ladies on board, which apparently, I mean, I went to um, I went to a, a most extraordinary happening. I was written to and asked, would I like to go to Southampton? This year it was on the 10th of April, to um take part in a reenactment of uh, the Titanic leaving Southampton. And I was quite excited and I got there and it was, it was hysterical because um, there were, uh, well, there were a lot of huge, well, it, it was, I think it was for the blind or something because uh, we were, there was dog, big Alsatian dogs and, and, you know, and we got on board a pleasure steamer called the the Blue Bounty or something. We couldn't go to where the Titanic sailed from because an immense and hideous uh, defense carrier from America was there. I mean, a huge thing covered in helicopters and nuclear warheads was there. So we stayed in this little pleasure boat while we went down. We then, um, then it was announced that we were going to have dinner uh, as from the menu of the Titanic, and I don't know whether any of you have seen the menu of the Titanic. I mean, it's incredible. But what we had was apple pie and custard. <laughs> and, was, and I was announced as the lady from the Express <laughs> newspaper. <laughs> and uh, Captain Smith's nephew, uh, grandnephew, and then a lady called, a very nice lady called Betty Walker was announced, uh, who apparently wasn't very happy because the other Titanic Society in England, uh, which is slightly grander than this one, won't recognize her. And so then it was explained why, because Betty was conceived on board the Titanic. <laughs> and it doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> so we all said how rotten that was. And <laughs> it, was, it was wonderful. And then they had some stalls with uh, things dredged up from the Titanic. And there was this amazing sort of row of huge carving knives and obviously medical instruments, which somebody told me that um, they were cookery, cookery from the kitchens, and there was an enema pouch and things. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an interesting. At what point? <laughs> nothing to do with the book. <laughs> yeah. 
at what point do you think it's absolutely reasonable to turn historical tragedy into myth, fiction? Um, well, it's been done a heck of a lot before. It know. has. I, I think. I think. How does so. this lady who was conceived on this rather extraordinary journey feel about yeah. it? Well, apart from the fact that she's not counted, I mean, I think <laughs> she was very, she was very pleased to go on these jaunts and things. But um, because it's it's a heck of a long while ago. I mean, it's eighty something years ago, and I think I think anything in um in the past, I think it's I think I I wouldn't agree that you should write about. I mean, I don't think you you could write about the as a novel. Um, the, the tragedy of the, the ferry, the ferry, the cross-channel steamer that went. But I think something like the Titanic, because you see, I suppose there is a, is a, a, a line where life becomes history, and a, and it's something to do with the time of the Titanic. That you have to remember that only two years later, it was uh, the outbreak of the First World War, and and nothing rather like Scott writing in his diary tell them uh, more or less we died like gentlemen is all these survivor stories of people like Guggenheim the millionaire on the top deck waving to people down below and shouting tell my wife I died like a gentleman I mean the fact that he had his mistress on board uh, wasn't really anything to do with it but it was after after the butchery of the First World War, uh, there wasn't, nobody ever, well, I don't think so, nobody ever again began to talk about, in such terms anyway, about being gentlemen, about being the flag, about dying for one's country. That got smashed by the even greater iceberg of the First World War. You know, life had changed. Can I, can I ask you before inviting you to read the end of the novel, um, how you approached the, d the disaster and human tragedies that inevitably your story ends with mm. in narrative terms? Well, again, it, it was <coughs> well, it was extremely difficult for, for other reasons in that I, I'd said to my publisher that it would be done... Uh, uh, the beginning of April, and at the beginning of April, I was quite a long way off the end, and so I rang up and said, you know, um, could I have another few days? No, 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 no. The, the firm was going away for Easter, apparently. They were going off on a holiday. No, I had to have... So uh, I threw a fit and, and cried down the telephone, and they sort of gave up and said, well, in a fortnight's time, please. So then um, I really sort of killed myself. So I stayed up day and night, day and night. And in actual fact, and I haven't just made this up, uh, that on the, <laughs> on the, in the small hours of April the 15th, which is when she sank, though I didn't know it, I was about five pages from the end. And that's when, in the, in the little bit I'm going to read you, this is when the ship is making its plunge. And I, I, I live in a Victorian house in Camden Town, and I was at the top of the house, and it was about, it was about four in the morning. Uh, she sank at two minutes, about 20 past two in the morning. 
But I was at the top of the house, and I was sat there, smoking my head off, and, 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 and suddenly I heard all these voices. And I'm not one of those people that, you know, I, I don't believe in the occult or anything like that, but I heard voices, so much so that I went downstairs to see if I'd left the wireless on. But I hadn't. And the minute I came down the stairs, the voices stopped, and I came back up. And this went on about two or three times. But the voices were so, um, they weren't frightening. These weren't screams or anything else. It was just, it was like a reunion downstairs or on the second landing, a reunion of somebody or other. So um, suddenly I just, just sort of, the thingies, the words came. Um, and I mentioned, you know, these voices and people shouting out things. And then I went into one of those things. I mean, if you, if you use your imagination, I, 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 I say things aloud a lot when I'm writing. You know, you, you, you try things out. You write a sentence, um, uh, the stars were shining, you know, and I stand up and I say, oh, the stars were shining. And if it's not got the right rhythm, you alter it in some way. So it just, in a funny sort of way, wrote itself at the end but I think that was probably exhaustion I think it was <laughs> I think it was a mistake I'm not going to is this working yep yeah um, don't forget Morgan is what about 23 he's American I'm not going to attempt to do the accent. I can't do that. Uh, it's it's uh, about what? It's about quarter past two on the morning of April the 15th. He's talked earlier, after midnight, he's talked to a sailor from Liverpool called Riley, who's told him that the best place to go when the ship starts to plunge is... Um, is on the top deck on something called the, the roof of the officer's house where there's a collapsible boat and he should try that. And all the, the other names are just, um, just his friends. I did as Riley had told me and once on the boat deck climbed the companionway up to the officer's house which was forward of the first funnel. There were seamen on the roof struggling to release the collapsible. I peered down and saw Guggenheim and his valet, both dressed as though off to a swell party. They were listening to the orchestra, which was playing ragtime to raise our spirits. Guggenheim tap-tapping his cane on the rail. Hopper stood not a yard from them, looking first one way, then the other. I guessed he was trying to find me and shouted out to him. By good luck, he heard and sprinted towards the stairs. He told me Charlie was further along the deck. They'd both gone aft to where a priest was giving conditional absolution to a demented congregation. When Charlie had fallen to his knees and started to blub out the most damn fool confessions, like how he'd tormented a cat when he was a child and how he'd stolen a dollar from his mother's purse, he'd had to leave him. Honest to God, Morgan, he said, he's turned yellow. At that moment, the orchestra changed tune and struck up a hymn, one I knew well because it was a favorite of my aunt's, and sometimes she used to sing it when she was in one of her brighter moods. E'en though it be a cross that raises me, 
Still all my song shall be, nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee. Hearing it, I knew I had to go in search of Charlie, for his mother's sake, if not my own, and would have gone on searching for him if Scora hadn't been waiting for me at the bottom of the steps. He said, A man bears the weight of his own body without knowing it, but he soon feels the weight of any other object. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that a man cannot forget, but not himself. Then before walking away, he said other things about it being the drop, not the height that was terrible. And I left Charlie to God and went back up to the officer's house. And now the moment was almost upon us. The stern began to lift from the water. Guggenheim and his valet played mountaineers going hand over hand up the rail. The hymn turned ragged, ceased altogether, the spike of a cello scraping the deck. Clinging to the rung of the ladder, I tried to climb to the roof, but it was such a sideways slant that I waved like a flag on a pole. I thought I must make a leap for it and turn to look for Hopper. Something, some inner voice, urged me to glance below, and I saw Scudder again, one arm hooked through the rail to steady himself. I raised my hand in greeting. Then the water, first slithering, then tumbling, gushed us apart. As the ship staggered and tipped, a great volume of water flowed in over the submerged bows and tossed me like a cork to the roof. Hopper was there too. My fingers touched some kind of boat near the ventilation grill, and I grabbed it tight. I filled my lungs with air and fixed my eyes on the blurred horizon, determined to hang on until I was sure I could float free, rather than be swilled back and forth in a maelstrom. I wouldn't waste my strength in swimming, not yet for I knew the ship was now my enemy, and if I wasn't vigilant, she would drag me with her to the grave. I waited for the next slithering dip, and when it came and the waves rushed in and swept me higher, I released my grip and let myself be carried away over the tangle of ropes and wires and davits, clear of the rails and out into the darkness. I heard the angry roaring of the dying ship, the deafening cacophony as she stood an end and all her guts tore loose. I choked on soot and cringed beneath the sparks, dancing like fireflies as the forehead funnel broke and smashed the sea in two. I thought I saw Hopper's face, but one eye was ripped away and he gobbled like a fish on a hook. I was sucked under, as I knew I would be, down, down, and still I waited, waited until the pull slackened. Then I struck out with all my strength. I don't know how long I swam under that livid sea, for time had stopped in my breath. And just as it seemed as if my lungs would burst, the blackness pales, and I kicked to the surface. I had thought I was entering paradise, for I was alive and about to breathe again. And then I heard the cries of souls in torment and believed myself in hell. Dear God, those voices. Father, Father, for the love of Christ, help me, for pity's sake. Where is my son? Some call for their mothers, some on the Lord, some to die quickly, a few to be saved. The lamentations rang through the frosty air and touched the stars. 
My own mouth opened in a silent howl of grief. The cries went on and on, trembling, lingering. And God forgive me, but I wanted them to end. In all that ghastly night, it was the din of the dying that chilled the most. Presently, the voices grew fainter, ceased. Yet still I heard them as though the drowned called to one another in a ghostly place where none could follow. Then silence fell, and that was the worst sound of all. There was no trace of the Titanic. All that remained was a grey veil of vapour drifting above the water. Ladies and gentlemen, do please at this stage um, ask questions. If you have a question, could you please put up your hand and stand up to ask it so that Beryl can see who it is that's questioning her. Can I take the first question from Tanya there with the red hair? Tanya with the red hair. And the second one from the gentleman up there, please. Um, is this working? Yes. Thank you very much for your reading. Um, I wondered how much you think the reason that the Titanic still occupies such a huge place in popular consciousness was to do with what it symbolized, in a sense, the death of all those Edwardian certainties which were finally swept away by the First World War? Yes, I, 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 I think you heard the question. Yes, yes I think it, it's exactly that. It's also the fact, I suppose, I, I mean, when I was reading about it, and don't forget, we, it's not as if immediately the Titanic sank, there were pictures flashed across on telly, or even on the wireless, on the radio. Um, the news filtered through by newspapers and headlines, reading headlines. In fact, the first, the first news of the Titanic sinking, uh, the accident was, Titanic hits Lifeberg, is limping towards Nova Scotia, all saved. And then, of course, then you have the other headlines which came out with the real truth. I, I think something like 26 hours later. So that immediately goes into the consciousness much more than if you see pictures. And the, that lingered on. And then there were, um, you know, survivors who wrote about it. And, and, and so it, it perpetuates a myth. And, and of the idea of that wonderful, wonderful ship. I mean, the the modernity of it, the, the interior of it, the skill, the craftsmanship, and to, you know, to just sink. It was, I think it was almost more that than the fact of people dying. Uh, I mean, they were used to disasters at sea. It was just that this happened to be a supposedly unsinkable ship. And you're right. Um, you know, all one, all their ideas of the stability of the world and industry and the greatness of everything um, went down with it, I think. Take the next question from there. You spoke about not about the ferry disaster, and you couldn't write about uh, living people. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you have any difficulty about uh, 
fictionalizing historical characters, what sort of liberties you can take with characters that exist in history? Um, but personally, I don't, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I, I, I've, I, all the real people who were on that boat, um, I more or less talk about them factually. I wouldn't, I, would, I, I personally would not like to say uh, Guggenheimer was a, a womanizer and a swine and all that any more than I would, uh, I leave them as just sort of pegs because for one thing, Guggenheim is a fantastic word, you know. Uh, there was also W.S. W. S. Stead on board, the, the man who, you know, the oculist, um, whatever it's called. Is an oculist an eye man? What, 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 no. what about, <laughs> what about Scott and his crew in The Birthday Boys? Well, that's different because uh, writing about Scott and, and The Birthday Boys, they had, Scott, for one, had written diaries. Um, Oh, you're right, actually. Yes, I did say things. Well, I wasn't nasty about them, was I? <laughs> no, no, so. you, you, were, you were lovely about them. No, no, yeah, yeah, you're right, I did. Yeah, I did, actually. I supposed what they were thinking. But in the end, I didn't make any one of them black, I don't think. I didn't say these were rotten. I wouldn't no, do you that. you did allow yourself a certain yes, license I did. with their lives. Yes, yes, I suppose I did. Well, I... Well, I think if it's a long ago enough, you, and you're quite nice about them, I think it's all right. <laughs> can, can Unless I, can it's I, Hitler. <laughs> can I take a question from the front row here, please? Could you use the microphone so that it's recorded? Everything that happens is recorded on tape, and there might be people up here who would like to come. Thank you. Miss Bainbridge, as a fellow Liverpudlian, I'd be interested in wondering whether you would ever refer back to Liverpool again in your in your books and um, perhaps bearing in mind that maybe you haven't lived there for some time or there's enough happening there at the moment or is there something still left to write about well my Liverpool doesn't exist anymore I mean I do go back I go back um, every I used to go back once a month up until about three years ago and in actual fact uh, the, the new book I'm doing I've decided uh, it opens, this is about somebody who goes to the Crimean War, and so it's going to open in Liverpool. So um, the only reason I don't every time set them in Liverpool, why I didn't, um, you know, go on about any member of the crew, and there were a heck of a lot of crew members, uh, plus the orchestra, who came from Liverpool, is because I've done it so often before, I felt I couldn't keep on plugging Liverpool, that was all. But I am going back to it. But. I, but I, I couldn't write about modern-day Liverpool because I, I don't... One, I'm not in sympathy with modern-day Liverpool. Um, I mean, I love Liverpool, but it's not my Liverpool. M my Liverpool belongs to uh, sort of, you know, join the war and memories the way my father regarded Liverpool. You know, he was, he was a young man in 19... Well, I suppose he was 18, 18... 1889 he was born so he was a young man in 1912 so I so that's my sort of Liverpool not the bustling you know sort of torn down city that one sees now I think do you think that's a commonplace for novelists that they sometimes find it more attractive they find themselves more engaged with their parents society than with their own yeah, but I think that's natural. I think um, 
I mean, presumably, I don't know enough about these things, but I think most um, 19th century novelists, they set their books back at least 50 years. I mean, Dickens was setting his books back all the time, or some of them anyway, in that you can only... Well, everything that happens to you in childhood and all the influences of your parents, uh, they're the things that actually stay lodged in the brain because they're the first impressions and when you're most open to things. I mean, after that is a gradual decline, I think. Um, I mean, I could... You see, I don't know the language used anymore in so-called modern novels. Um, I could parody it. I could sort of listen to, um, you know, the radio for a bit and try and parody modern times. But I, but no, because the person who'd be writing the story would be belonging to another generation. But so that, I actually, that, that, that issue of language is very interesting yeah. because you're writing. You're not faking up a, a, an Edwardian idiom here, are you? I mean, you're, you're no. writing in, in a voice that's neither contemporary nor contemporary with the story. Well, in a se well, in a sense, in one way it is, because um, don't forget that language in England. Well, I'm talking about my father. It didn't. It didn't. The language my father used, sort of things like um, I always remember when when. Uh, before bath night or something, and you came in from school or something, and he had a bath once a week or once a fortnight, my mother always would say, time for bath, you look like the wreck of the Hesperus. I mean, there were all sorts of literary <laughs> allusions that went on. And the, the, the language my father, uh, father used was the language his father had used, and that was, what, another 50 years earlier. So until the First World War, and then until cinema and everything, and it's those cadences that um, sort of stick in your mind, I think. Can I take a question from the gentleman in the striped shirt? Um, I just wanted to ask you whether you felt a, a feeling of anger or outrage looking at the events, because obviously as you're writing, you're identifying with certain characters and in a way that there's this parallel with Scott and yeah. the sort of debunking of, of that society that, uh. you know, in, in fact, Scott was a ruthless, ambitious naval officer who wanted preferment yes. and to that end he killed all these men because yes. he was a bumbling yes. incompetent I mean that yes. is that is one view of yes. Scott yes. Now, you Roland you Humphrey's view yeah it is, <laughs> yes indeed it is so it is one view so I'm not saying it is the view yeah. but obviously there's a lot in the Titanic story about the same parallels, the same incompetence the same grasping the economic argument to, to extract yes. money, yes. the way certain people in the steerage were treated and yes. why the greater loss of life was in steerage and so on yes. and so forth. Yes. And uh, my question really is, did some of this make you angry? Did you almost get a block because of your own feelings about what was going on? Or were you sort of ruthlessly um, organized in um. writing the story? No, neither of those things. It wasn't one, uh, I think if you're writing about something, I think really genuinely the novelist has to stand away from the subject a bit. You can't get, well, I suppose you could, but in my case I couldn't. Now, uh, you, you mentioned there about, um, you see, at the beginning I had this idea too that, um, you know, wasn't it disgusting that the third class were, uh, you know, they were the ones, the women and children, uh, 
mostly die, though many were, were saved, but the majority, um, as compared to first and second class. But you see, when you, the more you read about it, um, you realize there wasn't an intercom system on board, and there's these eight decks, and they were on, you know, about three decks up from the bottom. The, the captain couldn't um, get through immediately to all cabins and saying, you know, get out of bed up on top quickly or to your boat stations. And even if he could have done, there weren't enough boats. I mean, any anger one might feel is towards you know, the idea of why weren't there any, why weren't there any enough boats? Uh, if, if anger came into it at all, um, I think Captain Smith had a lot to answer for. I mean, when, when the dawn came, I mean, I thought there was one um, iceberg, you know, that just happened to hit the Titanic. But when the dawn came, the entire Atlantic, well, most of it, was covered it, at one point, there was a 20-mile sheet of ice, 20-mile sheet of ice, hundreds of icebergs. And all over the Atlantic, the ships had, st had stopped because of the ice warning. Uh, the Titanic had 23 ice warnings because they had Marconi wireless. And still, Captain Scott, uh, you know, Captain Smith, went plowing on. So you, that in a way, and of course, in the inquiries and everything, that doesn't come out. I mean, well, they don't. They don't pillory him. In fact, um, the interesting thing is that that the wife of Captain Scott was a very good sculptress, and she did um, an enormous statue of Captain Smith after the sinking, uh, which is in Lichfield apparently. Which nobody knows who it is mm. now anymore. But um. The most glorious <laughs> metaphor of there being no communication between the decks. Well, you well, I suppose there'd be a communication with the engine rooms, but, I mean, that's a very sophisticated thing, obviously, to wire up everywhere, isn't it? And there were dormitories, you see. They were in dormitories. And, uh, no, it was a... It, it's not an... It, you can't be angry about it. I think you could... Though that perhaps it's unfair. You could say the fact that that, um, in the Euro Tunnel, that the freight train, the fire was seen before the train went into the tunnel... I mean, supposing people had died in that. Well, you could be angry about that because, um, because you know, they, they could actually see the fire. But um, in the case of this, uh, I suppose maybe one has to believe that he did think the ship was unsinkable. That seems a bit odd, but still. Um, can, can I take um, two last questions before... I'm inviting Beryl back to the book turn to sign some books. Yes, lady there. Can I just ask the um, the structure of class represented yeah. in the structure of the Titanic, all the souls on the Titanic? Yeah. Is that a conscious representation of society at the time? The different what levels? the structure of the class? Yeah. The um, way the way they either suffered or survived, or had the opportunity or awareness to suffer or survive? Well, don't forget the first class <laughs> were nearest the top deck where the boats were. So, of course, they... I mean, you can make anything seem to fit into this class structure thing in the end. Um, but, but, but from my, my point of view, just writing the book, 
the, of the structure of the book and the structure of the both and the structure of the class system was that I could only deal with the people on the top deck because they were nearest. They're the ones that are going to get to the boats. I couldn't muck about with downstairs. You know, I could get, maybe there were those few, uh, the, uh, the Irish, or I think it was the Irish, who broke down the little barrier and demanded to come up on top. But, um, but I, 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 no, you see, I don't, we think now of third class, but I mean, you've got to see the, the, me the, the pictures of third class in the dining room and the food, I mean, it was fantastic. Okay, first class was even better, but um, there weren't the poor down below on bread and water, you know, sort of in the dark <laughs> as, the, as the water swelled up. It wasn't that kind of thing at all. Can I take last question from a gentleman in the middle of air with the mustard-coloured shirt? And there's a, there's a microphone just coming to you from here. Thank you. You mentioned the irony in writing about your Titanic, that you knew the ending before it started. Did yeah. you, in your research, encounter the book Futility, which was a novel written 12 years before the Titanic sank? Uh, no, is that the one, the one about how to say, Titan it was called, wasn't Titan. it? Titan, yes. No, I've, I've not read it, but of course I, I, I know about it, that it had the same tonnage, the same everything. Same yeah. horsepower, and ran into an iceberg. Yes, same amount of dead. Yeah, and had it been a white star liner, it would have ended the high sea. Oh, God, yes, yes. No, I, I, I didn't, I don't know whether it's, whether you can ever get hold of it now, but uh, was it written by a man or a woman? written by a man, I believe, oh, man. and I've been, I've been trying to find it, but you can't find it, but I you don't can find so. continual references to it. It was written yes, exactly. by yeah. a man named Scudder. Maybe, maybe. Thank you very much. Th there, there is a famous old um, cinema story that Lou Grade, having <laughs> ruined his studio, making um, Raise the Titanic, told a fellow mogul that it would have been cheaper to sink the Atlantic. <laughs> yes. um, this book will not set you back nearly that much and I recommend <laughs> it very highly please join me in thanking Beryl Bainbridge